lot of people are still having trouble getting their shot. I've been on this website for Rite Aid, for CVS, for the one for the county, and I can't get any appointment. I mean, it's getting rolled out, but it, it just seems kind of haphazard. Frustration. That's the word many are using about COVID-19 vaccination appointments. They're hard to come by. I go in there today. I said, look, can somebody just make the appointment for me? You have to go online. I said, I went online. I've been online since Sunday night. Several months into the vaccine rollout, it is still a race against time just to get vaccines in arms. Nationally, the vaccine rollout has been challenging. Even with more time and a lot of patience, should everyone who wants a vaccine be able to get one, we might find new obstacles frustrating efforts to eradicate the virus. I think soon we're going to be at the point where the limiting step is we don't have any eligible individuals who will elect to get the vaccine. It strikes me as evidence of misplaced priorities that we are engaging in what is approximately the single most important social program of the modern era by relying on volunteers, right? There is pretty much nothing more important that we could be doing for society right now than getting vaccines in arms as fast as possible and as broadly as possible. When we prioritize things, we have more resources available and relying on volunteers strikes me as evidence that there's not sufficient priority. On this episode of The Pie, since so much hinges on us getting vaccine rollout right, how can we best use market incentives to speed up delivery? This is the pie. Economists are always talking about the pie. How it grows and shrinks, how it's sliced, who gets the biggest share. In this show, we'll talk about the most pressing matters of the day. And in this episode, we're going to look at distribution of the COVID-19 vaccine. More and more folks who are eager for the vaccine are becoming eligible. So what can we do to speed up the distribution using the tools of economics and putting the muscle of market dynamics into play? I'm Tess Vigland. And I'm Eduardo Porter. We've been invited to have this series of conversations with University of Chicago scholars and other experts. The Pie is a production of the University of Chicago's Becker Friedman Institute and WBEZ Chicago. I talked with Josh Gottlieb, associate professor at Harris Public Policy, and for a medical perspective, Dr. Dave Petrak, a professor and chief of infectious diseases and global health for UChicago Medicine. Well, Josh, uh, let's start with you. You've written that one of the problems facing the vaccination effort right now is that we aren't paying enough to the people who are on the the supply side of that effort, the providers, the people who are putting the shots in arms. So that's hospitals, doctors, pharmacies. It's whoever gave me uh, my doses at the Oregon Convention Center. How is that affecting the overall vaccination effort? Because it sounds almost like you're saying that providers are letting doses sit on shelves because they're not getting paid enough. Is that the case? So the problem is that we want to make sure our massive healthcare complex, our massive healthcare industry, pulls out all the stops to get as many doses in arms as fast as possible. And that's going to just happen faster and more effectively and with more effort when there's more money at stake. The same way that in any industry, if a firm knows that it can sell more product faster uh, for a higher price, it will put in more effort. 
that's what we want, that we should want providers competing for your business, trying to reach people who are on the fence or harder to reach. And paying more is the simplest and most direct way to make that happen. You write that increased payments would motivate providers to pull out all the stops. I wonder, can you give an example of what vaccination providers could be doing that they're not? What, what does that look like? I'll give you some examples that I've thought of, but the key point that I want to make is that I don't know. I don't know what the right answers are for reaching every different community in the United States. I suspect you don't know, and I suspect any individual doc or CDC official doesn't know. Different hospitals and different pharmacies and different clinics know their communities better than you do or I do or the governors do or the CDC does. And so I want to give them the motivation and the flexibility to do whatever it might be. So in some cases, that might mean having people on site or on the phone who can assuage any fears about vaccination. In some cases, it might be coming up with new ways to sign people up or new locations to make shops available or financial motivations. Krispy Kreme Donuts is offering free donuts for uh, the rest of the year, I think, to anybody right. who gets vaccinated. Maybe that's the right thing to do. Maybe on the north side of Chicago, it's getting into a raffle for Cubs tickets. Maybe on the south side, it's for White Sox tickets. Maybe it's CVS giving coupons or gift certificates to people who get vaccines there. I don't know what will work for each community. And giving them the motivation to figure it out I think is the best way to, to make access as widespread as possible and as fast as possible. So Dr. Petrak, I wonder if you agree that larger payments to these providers, the hospitals, doctors, pharmacies, would make a difference in how many people are, are getting vaccinated in a, in a timely manner. As far as the vaccine rollout at our institution, most of the vaccine clinic is run by volunteers or nurses who have extra time because their clinical duties have been curtailed by the COVID pandemic. And with that, we're able to have a vaccine clinic six days a week that has the ability to vaccinate a thousand people per day. And it hasn't really resulted in any extra payments to any of the clinical staff that's doing this work. We have donors that have given money so that they will pay the clinical staff that will be actually putting those vaccines into people's arms. So there will be some payment for activities outside of our hospital at the community health centers, but otherwise it's something that we've incorporated from volunteers and from staff who have time available because their other clinical activities have been curtailed. If I can just jump off of Dave's point here, this is exactly uh, what I'm talking about. So first of all, let me express my gratitude to the volunteers who are volunteering to do this incredibly important activity. But it strikes me as evidence of misplaced priorities that we are engaging in what is approximately the single most important social program of the modern era by relying on volunteers right? There is pretty much nothing more important that we could be doing for society right now than getting vaccines in arms as fast as possible and as broadly as possible. 
And I'm sure the volunteers are great at it, but when we prioritize things, we have more resources available. And relying on volunteers strikes me as evidence that there's not sufficient priority. Isn't a lot of the vaccine rollout, the, the process being determined by state and local governments and health departments? I mean, how, how much difference would it really make to be paying those institutions versus government more when they're really relying on, on state and local governments to tell them what they should be doing? You can't put doses in arms until you have the doses. Right. And indeed, there's nothing to be done from the perspective of the suppliers to get doses faster. But once they have the doses, we want them getting in arms as fast as possible. And as we start to go through the population that is most eager to to put in the effort to get a vaccine really quickly, and we start to need to, to think about how do we reach other populations, folks who may be hesitant about vaccines in general, folks who may be hesitant about the COVID vaccine in particular, folks who might find all of the uh, bureaucracy of making an appointment and figuring out your priority group and getting to yeah. a particular location, find that to just not be worth it. Then we need to motivate providers to get out there. And the faster, the better. So, Josh, I asked earlier for a picture of kind of how those incentives would change what providers are currently doing. How does that also potentially work financially? How do you reward that speed for providers who go ahead and, you know, try some of the things that you were mentioning earlier? The average cost of a particular service is potentially very different from the marginal benefit. So an economist would not suggest that we should pay more for things just because they are costlier to produce. That incentivizes the healthcare system to provide services that are costly. Here we're talking about something that is pretty low cost, right? Administering a vaccine is one of the lower cost things that a healthcare system can do. But it's incredibly valuable. And so... We want to provide a lot of encouragement to do that. And when you say, well, it's cheap, so we won't pay very much for it, that's maybe penny wise, but it's pound foolish because the benefits of getting a vaccine in any one arm are really enormous because it prevents the disease from spreading. It, it, it reduces the likelihood that mutations occur and new variants emerge it allows the economy to get back to normal. It gives people a sense of confidence. All of these things are not accounted for when you just pay based on average cost. After the break, we'll hear from Dr. Dave Petrak about what we can learn from past mass vaccination efforts. And how are the COVID variants changing the game? We've been talking about how to provide perhaps some financial incentives for providers, doctors, hospitals, pharmacies to encourage them to speed up the process of getting shots in arms. That, however, does not get at another problem that we're seeing right now, which is a hesitancy by people themselves to go and get that shot. So let me start with you, Josh. Can you address that and perhaps... Is there a way that financial incentives could play a role in 
getting people to go ahead and and get the shot, maybe aside from free donuts. (laughs) Nothing wrong with free donuts. Nothing wrong with free donuts, no. You know, the reason that I'm pushing so hard on paying providers, paying the supply side, is that individuals' motivations are just more complicated. Right. It's hard to know what it is that will change any particular person's decision-making on this. Is it more information? Is it the same information but presented differently? Is it a financial nudge or might the financial nudge backfire? Is it an endorsement from somebody that they trust or somebody that they respect? It's just really hard to know. Whereas I think the motivations of organizations are easier to figure out, Hmm. right? You pay more and that's going to encourage them to take whatever action they think will get people in the door. And, And that really could differ among different places. The idea here is the very standard idea in economics that supply curves slope up. What do I mean by that? The higher the price of something that you're selling, in this case, the the good or the service that's being sold is vaccination, vaccine provision. The higher the price of that, the more providers are going to enter this market. And that's Mm. because they have different costs of getting something done, different Pharmacies or different clinics have different wages that they pay. They have different real estate costs. Perhaps most importantly, there are differences in what else they could be doing with their time and the outside value of their time and their efforts. And as you pay more, you work your way up farther and farther up this curve. So to to the organizations with higher and higher costs. Right? If you only pay a little, then only a few organizations will have costs that are low enough for it to be worth it. As you pay more and more, you're going to get a larger and larger set of organizations, more and more pharmacy locations that will be worth it, more and more hours that they, that they can be open, and more and more efforts that they can and will make to engage in outreach of whichever form that is. Dave Petrak, so there's the economic argument. What's your view from... From the medical community. Sure. Well, I, th- I think pain patients, I mean, this comes up with the other epidemic we've been facing for 40 years, and that's HIV. There's always been a discussion mm. in this country about paying people something to stay retained in care, stay virally suppressed by taking their medications. It really hasn't ever taken off in the United States. I think there are some other countries that do that. Part of the issue here is it is very complex. And um, now the decision to get the vaccine or not, I've never seen a disease condition that's become so uh, politicized. And a lot of the resistance to getting a vaccine has to do with politics. So I'm not sure how much pain the patients would help. Paying the healthcare system, I think, sounds reasonable, but you'd also have to really look at how do you incentivize them, and do you incentivize based on the number of injections they give? You know, one of the things that has really come up when we talk about vaccine allocation at our institution is how are we really being fair and equitable And are we really giving the vaccine to individuals who 
are at the highest. So it's not so much a matter of increasing how many people get their doses here. It's how many people are we getting who are in our surrounding communities? They actually live in the high-risk areas. How many people are actually African-American or Latino? Are we really vaccinating the folks um, that are highest risk? And that sort of reimbursement scheme would be complex as well. You mentioned HIV and the incentives uh, talked about to, to get people to take their meds. Dave, is there anything we can learn from previous mass vaccination efforts about how to use incentives throughout this process? Well, we really haven't had a mass vaccination effort since the 2009-2010 swine flu, but that was a short-lived pandemic that didn't have to continue the way it looks like the COVID-19 vaccine initiative is going to have to continue. Polio was a big one, and I think with polio, it was at a time when so many people were developing paralytic polio that people really wanted to make sure they had that vaccination. I I think it was at a time, too, where people trusted public health to a greater degree. I think it was a time when people listened to recommendations that come from public health authorities. I think it's a very different climate nowadays. So I got polio vaccine in kindergarten. You know, everyone was very happy. Their parents were very happy because... We all knew, had friends who developed paralytic polio before that vaccine was available. Mm. Now you have family members, friends who develop COVID and sometimes have a severe outcome, but we just haven't seen that sort of same faith in our public health authorities and listening to public health authorities about following infection control guidelines or committing to getting the vaccine. So right now we're at a point where we don't have enough vaccine to give everyone who wants it. I think soon we're going to be at the point where the limiting step is we don't have any eligible individuals who will elect to get the vaccine. They're going they're going to refuse. Well, I wonder if both of you might address uh, the emergence of these new COVID variants from the UK, Brazil, California, there's even apparently one here in Oregon. Josh, let me start with you. How do providers start to grapple with that while also continuing to deal with uh, original COVID? I I don't know if that's a thing. Original COVID, COVID type A, COVID number one. (laughs) Right. I think wild type is what the uh, biologists call it. How does that layer upon what you've been talking about for providing incentives for providers? I think that we basically are in a, a pretty important race. This sort of metaphor is overused, but I think it might be appropriate here. In general, the evidence is pretty good that the vaccines are pretty effective at uh, stopping most of the variants, right? So the sooner we get the shots in arms, the better position we're in to slow the spread of the variants. So I've, I've just been pulling up the Bloomberg vaccination tracker as of when we're recording this. They say that 78% of the shots that have been delivered have been used. 
This varies dramatically by state. So some states, the upper Midwest is up near 90%, and some other states are in the mid 60%. So if you think about this, 78% have been used, that means 22% haven't. That means we could increase nationally the, the number of vaccinated people by a quarter tonight, this week, just by taking those shots that are on a shelf somewhere, whether it's at a, a clinic or at a State Department of Public Health or wherever uh, they are. They've been delivered to somebody and they're not in arms yet. And if hmm. we get those in arms faster, that will slow down the variants. Dave Petrak, thoughts? I think one thing that's hopeful is as new variants do emerge, I think the technology now, especially with the mRNA vaccines, is such that you can actually develop and start to manufacture vaccines against those variants in short Mm. order. Can you have polyvalent mRNA vaccines? I don't know. But I do know they, Moderna had announced that they could be able to start to manufacture vaccine against a variant within a week of knowing the sequence of the virus, which is very easy to get. Well, I'd like to end, um, unfortunately, on a a bit of a downer question, but I'm going to ask it anyway um, and ask you both to look out several months, maybe past the end of the year, and talk about what happens if we don't or can't eradicate this virus. What are the long-term implications? And Josh, I'll ask you about what that looks like for the global economy in a moment. But Dave, let me get your medical answer first, maybe just a life answer. What does life look like at that point? I think there is a good chance that COVID will continue to circulate. And if the duration of immunity is not as long as we hoped, if new variants come out that can evade the vaccines, All of that will mean that we probably have to have revaccination and we'll probably have to see if we can still adhere to the infection control procedures that would help limit the spread even beyond getting vaccinated. I think it's been pretty remarkable that, you know, despite all the controversy about masks and social distancing, Enough people do comply with that, that this year we've seen absolutely no influenza activity. Right, right. That whole seasonal flu period did not occur this year. Pretty remarkable. And I think that some of these infection control procedures are just going to be the norm for a long time to come and that people won't be getting a COVID vaccination or series of vaccinations one time. I think it's something that may have to be done on a regular basis. So COVID could be the new seasonal flu. Yes, although more severe and certainly larger numbers of cases. Josh, what about the global economy if we fail to eradicate this virus? I'm an optimist on technology and a pessimist on state capacity. Hmm. So building off of what Dave said a few minutes ago about the really incredible technology that is mRNA, it seems like we have this technological capacity that has not been available at any previous point in history to take any sequence 
whether it's the current wild type COVID or any variants that emerge in, in the future or variants that are here now, and if they become sufficiently important, make vaccines that directly target them. But that could mean that we need to regularly administer a large number of vaccines really quickly. But can be done, right? The, the regular seasonal flu vaccination campaign is very fast, very widespread, and you know doesn't have anything near the coverage that we need for herd immunity from COVID, but gets a lot of shots in arms pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So I think designing a system that we're able to repurpose for whether it's an annual booster, if we turn out to need that for, for COVID or biennial or whatever it may be, or new versions or polyvalent vaccines, whatever it is that, that turns out to be necessary, let's make sure that we can take advantage of the incredible science that has been done, the really impressive rapid manufacturing that we can do by using the network of healthcare providers that we have available to just make it a simple thing that every fall or whatever the appropriate time is, you get your new COVID shot and just make it easy, make it make it a part of life the way the flu vaccine has been for the past 10 or 20 years since that became really widespread. And that means spending some money on it, but it's a lot less money to spend on that than what we lose from having to shut down society. A much more hopeful note than than I expected to end on. So thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. The Pie is a production of WBEZ Chicago and the Becker Friedman Institute for Economics at the University of Chicago. This episode was produced by Dana Bialik. We are produced and mixed by Story Mechanics. Our theme and all original music in the series is by Story Mechanics. Our executive producer is Ellen Horn. I'm Eduardo Porter. And I'm Tess Vigland. 